0: welcome to the no breaking podcast uh today i'm getting the chance to talk to tim matthews now tim matthews has an incredibly long title but it's a title that's very well deserved he is the curator of the speedway motors museum of american speed so tim firstly how does that all fit in a business card to start with
1: (laughs) not always so well but we try our best
0: (laughs) Well, and and speaking of that, let's just get right into it, obviously, here. How did you sort of come to this position at the museum? How did you become to be the curator there at the Speedway Motors Museum of American Speed?
1: Well, you know, it's a it's a long story, and and like so many things in life, uh, sometimes it doesn't follow a trajectory or a plan uh, that you had in mind, uh, but it it does uh, just kind of come into being, and you find yourself kind of looking backwards, wondering uh, how you could be so lucky and how it all happened uh, uh, in a case like this. So I guess to explain the story, and I started out uh, as a boy growing up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which uh, uh, you know, isn't a place known for its uh, uh, exotic cars, but I always uh, loved cars. You know, my dad was into circle track racing and restoring uh, Tri-5 Chevys, and, and we, we'd hang out at a lot of salvage yards and, and go to a lot of uh, auctions and swap meets. Uh, so from an early age, I, I just fell in love with uh, vintage cars and, and the history behind them uh, and, and kind of have been around cars my whole entire life. My interest was really in becoming an artist, So uh, I love sculpture. I loved uh, oil painting and and, and things of that sort. So uh, that's what I wanted to go to school for. You know, I'd always been around cars, but I really wanted to be uh, a sculptor and a teacher. Uh, And that's what kind of led me to Lincoln, Nebraska. I I did my undergraduate studies uh, at a small uh, university, Augustana University in Sioux Falls. And then I transferred up to the University of Minnesota to study metal casting under a wonderful man named Wayne Potratz. Uh, so I learned uh, aluminum and, and cast iron casting there. And I really hoped to get into the graduate program uh, at the University of Minnesota. Of course, they had just built a brand new facility uh, while I was up there. And it was really hard uh, to find a place in that graduate program. So I applied to Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, because it was close by. I wanted to be within driving distance of my parents during those years. Uh, so Lincoln, Nebraska seemed like a pretty good place. And Wayne Potratz told me, he said, you know, when you get to Lincoln, Nebraska, if you get accepted there, uh, the first place you need to go is to Speedy Bill's Museum of American Speed. And I thought that was so cool because, you know, he knew I was a, a car lover. Uh, so I'll never forget arriving in Lincoln to become a student looking in the front windows of the museum I'm sitting in right now and, and just imagining, you know, uh, getting my first tour and and uh, just. Just as a spectator at the museum uh so i, I did end up coming to school at, at the university of nebraska to, to finish out my master's degree in sculpture and i just flat ran out of money i was doing uh, metal casting at the time and the materials were super expensive and uh, i remembered what wayne told me and i remembered my first tour through the museum so uh While it was forbidden for me to get a job to earn money on the side, I decided I was going to take the risk, and I I came to apply at Speedway Motors, uh, (laughs) and I was just going to work here for one summer. You know, I thought if I could just do part-time during the summer, that would give me enough money to get some iron and some uh, bronze ingots and go back to school and finish out my master's degree – Well, I didn't plan it, but as I came to work and I started talking to people about their car projects, I mean, I really started at the bottom of the heap. I was just taking orders on the phone lines at that time. Uh, I I was really loving the job. I I enjoyed talking to customers and finding out what they were working on, what kinds of hot rods they were building, and I never went back to school. I I decided I would not finish my master's degree, and, and I stuck it out at Speedway and gosh, that was 15 years ago now. I I worked my way up through the sales department and became uh, a supervisor of the technical staff. And about five years ago, 10 years into my my career at Speedway, uh, they asked me to come over and and take over the the curator position at the museum uh, because the the previous curator, a wonderful man uh, named John McKeekin, was ready to retire. So that was five years ago. I've never looked back. I've just found it a great privilege and a wonderful opportunity, and and uh, I learn something new every day. It's just a spectacular uh, place to be in.
0: So we take a step back then, Tim. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Speedway Motors and, and Speedy Bill and so forth, and so how that all sort of came to be and how did it all end up there where it is today?
1: you know speedy bill uh was born in lincoln nebraska and he lived here his whole entire life and he was you know he went to school for industrial arts to become an industrial artist but found out he could make more money circle track racing at the time While he realized he'd never be the next greatest driver, uh, he found that he could supply parts to people and he could build a pretty fabulous racing team. So, uh, you know, it all kind of started at a grassroots level, you know, just uh, supplying parts to people who needed them. We had an Air Force base in Lincoln, Nebraska, and a lot of those uh, fellas had extra money to spend and they wanted to go racing, either drag racing or circle track racing. Uh, So his business grew uh, rapidly. And, you know, just through, you know, a good old-fashioned hard work uh, and a family that supported him, uh, including his wonderful wife, Joyce, uh, they were able to build uh, this wonderful uh, parts uh, business, and and which is still thriving today and, and still growing.
0: Yeah, and so then with the parts business, how did the museum sort of come to be a part of that then? You
1: know, that's a great question. You know, Bill Smith was always enamored with history. And from the time he started uh, working with cars, which was a very early age. I think his first car was a Model T. And as he was hauling scrap for a person at the age of 14, if you could imagine that, uh, he traded uh, some transport services for a Model T uh, from a local salvage uh, owner. And uh, as he was hauling the scrap, he would occasionally come across rare speed parts like ratio cylinder heads and front and neck parts. And, you know, he would he would find those things so interesting that he would keep them Aside, uh, so from the age of 14, really, he was collecting parts uh, from these uh, speed uh, engineers from from the early days that he just found to be wizards. Uh, he was collecting parts before anyone cared about them uh, and putting them away. And it wasn't until 1992 that it became a 501c3 uh, nonprofit museum. I think enough of his friends over the years. Uh, it would see his treasures kind of stored away uh, in, in the storage containers and in various garages around town. And, and they finally convinced him that, you know, people really needed to see the stuff. So that's when the museum really took off.
0: And then so when you say uh, they needed to see it, I mean, what sort of exhibitions have come and, and gone through the years then?
1: You know, primarily what we show at the museum is, is – the vast permanent collection, uh, and it's it, you know we have probably one of the greatest collections of early speed parts for Model A and Model T uh, Ford vehicles. So uh, a lot of the stuff, while it does move in and out, uh, we take things in and out of storage just to keep keep it fresh. Really, what you see at the museum is much of the permanent collection that Bill and Joyce, and an extension of that, his son uh, son's Clay. Craig Carson and Jason have collected over the years.
0: And so, so, what are the some of the current exhibitions that are sort of the feature displays at this current time?
1: You know, we have uh, we have a brand new drag racing gallery, which is pretty spectacular. Uh, we just uh, installed that, so uh, that will be one of the one of the more recent uh, displays that that people will be able to see. We also have a new. Uh, Automotive Art Gallery, uh, which displays automotive-related flat artwork, so paintings and drawings. Uh, This is all new since the COVID pandemic, so when we reopen on April 1st, these will be new attractions people can see alongside of the permanent collection, uh, which is, you know, we have... Uh, probably the, the one of the best collections of vintage pedal cars. Uh, we have one of the best collections in the United States of tether racers or spin dizzies, gas-powered miniature race cars. Uh, we also have a pretty spectacular display of, of uh, rare production cars, including a Tucker Torpedo and and uh, various Duesenbergs and and whatnot. So yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to put a finger on on just a few of the areas. You know, it really is a museum. Uh, That is a collection of collections. So we have, you know, a great collection of vintage uh, metal lunch pails for existence, for example. And we also have uh, a collection of uh, radiator mascots, you know, very similar to the Gilmore Museum uh, and their collection. So a lot of a lot of uh, sub collections within the museum.
0: Yeah, and then so touching on that, I mean, obviously, COVID certainly had a worldwide impact. How has that sort of impacted the museum? I mean, has that allowed you to maybe do some things that you wouldn't have been able to do with having sort of, we'll say, obviously less visitors and that kind of thing?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's uh, I heard a figure not long ago uh, from somebody involved with tourism who told me that 50% of muse- museums will fail because of the pandemic, and that was just a heartbreaking. Uh, that was just a heartbreaking number. I mean, to, to think about, and I, you know, I can name a few museums right off the cuff who have had a really hard time, uh, through the pandemic. And, you know, it's just impressed upon me how important it is to have visitors at your museum. We're fortunate that, that we've not, uh, had any financial difficulty because of the pandemic. So we've really been able to focus on just making the displays better. You know, we've kept the whole entire staff uh, employed throughout uh, the time. And and so it's given us a chance to kind of look at things with fresh eyes, uh, to take some of the energy that goes into just the day-to-day operations of the museum and, and turn to uh, – Maybe reworking some of the displays, some of the wording in the the displays, and also bringing on some new uh, vehicles on loan, uh, which will make uh, some of the displays more interesting.
0: Fantastic. And then with that also, obviously, have you been able to spend a little bit more time on some of your uh, outside of work projects yourself than in this town time?
1: No, I wish. You know, I I thought maybe this would be like the greatest time ever uh, to get some of my work done on my own personal cars, but it turns out I'm I'm just as busy as I've ever been with the museum, uh, just trying to stay on top of uh, all the new displays and and uh, keeping up with uh, a lot of the friends of the museum. You know, the majority of my time uh, that I spend is just cultivating the relationships and the friendships of the museum. And, uh, you know, while this museum really began as uh, a story about Bill and Joyce and their collecting, it's, it's really morphed into a story of, uh, many other people, uh, as they've donated and loaned vehicles uh, over the past five years, uh, you know, it becomes a wider story, which uh, it, it keeps you busy because you're researching all of that. Uh, and you're also trying to put the best story forward. So, uh, yeah, I've been as busy as ever.
0: <laughs> so so speaking of that, Tim, when you have obviously haven't had a chance to breathe so much. I mean, what are some of those interesting stories that you've had over the past couple of years and you had to document and go into detail on?
1: Well, one of the cool cars that we just received is uh, the Dave uh, Hales Willys Gasser. And it's one of the only surviving, if not the only surviving uh, gasser from the 60s that was part of the s and uh, racing team. Uh, out of the East coast and it, you know, it's a fabulous car because it's been in Dave Hale's collection and in his hands, you know, since he was 16, you know, there was a brief period where he sold it and had to rebuy, you know, repurchase the car. Uh, but, uh, it has, still has all of its original upholstery and, and original, uh, Speed parts, and to get an original Willys that was uh, raced, you know, during the golden era of gassers uh, here at the museum to be a part of our new drag racing gallery—that's been a really fabulous. Uh, fabulous event. And and it's been a wonderful relationship getting to know Dave and hearing all the stories about what early drag racing was like. So that's, that's one, you know, another great story is a friendship we've made with a man named Eric Zausner. And Eric uh, has donated a number of uh, high end hot rods to us that were built by Steve Mole out of California. And each car is more or less an artistic expression of of, uh, of Eric's. And uh, you know, receiving those cars and just kind of documenting the story on on his way of thinking when the cars were built uh, has been very fascinating. And then he also donated a number of his uh, gas powered spin dizzies to our collection, uh, which really really boosted our collection to uh, to a level that's uh, uh, definitely world class.
0: Yeah, and so speaking of that, can you talk a little bit about some of the other roles that uh, your other team members have uh, that work with you in regards to their roles at the museum that help you sort of get things up and running and sort of get this history online?
1: Absolutely. You know, we have a total of 50 volunteers at the museum, and we couldn't do anything without them. I mean, and they come from all walks of life. You know, they're doctors and lawyers and x-ray technicians and, you know, people that are that are wonderfully well-rounded, but they're all car crazy. So uh, not only do they help with a lot of the day-to-day when we're open, you know, giving people really – personalized tours of the collection uh, and helping us keep everything tidy and and looking its best. Uh, But they also help us with a lot of the research that that takes place, you know, because especially during the pandemic, they found themselves at home uh, more often. So they've been able to get behind a computer and get their noses in books. And and that's been a huge help. Uh, We have a, a number of full time staff that that help us out with uh, you know, event coordination uh, with building and and keeping our website up. Uh, not only that, but social media uh, with Twitter and and Facebook and and all of the others. Uh, you know, so uh, there are there are a lot of behind the scenes tasks that take place. You know, uh, we have a a library within the museum, so we have a full time librarian. Uh, you know, who takes in all of the books and 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 keeps them well organized. We have a number of people in our accessioning team that catalog all of the objects that come to the museum uh, just to keep everything in order and, and to make sure we know where everything is, especially with two large off-site facilities for storage. Uh, you know, we're, we're really tasked with uh, keeping really good records. So that's a that's a full-time job for two people always.
0: And, and so speaking of that, I mean, if you could give some advice on someone that's maybe looking to work inside a museum of sorts, I mean, what would you suggest or what were your tips that you might have for them?
1: You know, my son asked me this question not, not long ago. And it's funny he would ask because he's 10 years old. So he's got a little ways to go, but before he's ready for a full-time job, but you know, he asked me, he said, dad, you know, if I wanted to do uh, what you do, you know, how would I go about that or how would I get a job at a museum uh, like yours someday? And, and I think the most important thing is just to be a passionate person, you know, about either history or the automotive world. And I don't think, you know, uh, I don't think you have to be both, but you know, it certainly helps if you if you do uh, have kind of an understanding of automotive history. Uh, you know, I always people ask me all the time. You know, Tim, you know, how did you get this job? You know, obviously, it's a job you love and and uh, you're really excited about. And I always tell them the same thing. I you know, I think the job kind of found me in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I I'm just such a passionate car person I, I love people I, I think if uh, if you attack it in that uh, way I you know I think car museums are always looking for help I always I, if it's anything like uh, my particular museum there's always more work to be done than you'll ever get accomplished with your team so you know I, I think museums are always looking for people and when people come knocking on on my door you know I'm just looking for folks that are excited and and passionate and are energetic and and just want to get in there and, and help people learn about the history
0: yes and and speaking of that obviously I know that we have uh, one of the reasons for this call today is to talk about a certain car in particular Dale which is obviously the the focal point of a new HBO television documentary series called the lady in the Dale so can you tell me a little bit about how the Dale came to be sort of in your world
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's a really interesting story. The Dale was never really my favorite car, sadly. I, you know, I just never quite understood it the way I do today. Uh, When I first came to the museum five years ago, uh, we had made the decision to take it off of display. It had been on display for about a year and we were just putting it back into storage. And that's where it stayed until about two weeks ago. Uh, When we brought the car back out and and put it on on the show floor again. And the reason was, is because of this HBO documentary that has really uh, captivated a lot of folks uh, with regard to the story of how the Dale came to be. Uh, So uh, with the you know with the documentary we decided to push it back out. The car itself is very interesting. There are three Dales that I'm aware of. There is the car that we have, which uh, Nick Camilleri, who created the documentary, likes to refer to as the space car. I think they call it the space car because it's probably the most futuristic looking of the Dales. It's it's the most sleek, uh, but it's also more or less a sculpture. It does not have an engine. Uh, it doesn't have interior. It's it's a fiberglass that was really a design concept uh, study. Uh, it's the car that ended up being on all the Dale uh, brochures and also was the car that was on the prices Right, of all things. So, uh, you know, pretty interesting car. There's a second car, which is at the Peterson Museum. And I believe that is the car that was in the Rotunda at the 20th Century Motor Car Company. Uh, so people could look at it and pay pay money in advance to hopefully uh, get a place in line to receive the car. And then there's a third Uh, which I believe is an operational car that's in a private collection. And I've not seen that car recently. It really hasn't boiled to the surface for a while, so I don't know what the status of that one is. Our particular car uh, has kind of a neat history, I think, because, uh, you know, from what I've read about it, and we have a lot of documentation from Bill Smith on how he acquired it, and it really didn't happen long after, Uh, the 20th Century Motor Car Company imploded. Uh, So it arrived to Lincoln, Nebraska on July 1st of 1975, and Bill acquired it from his good friend, Dean Moon, who was a hot rodder, uh, California car guy. Everybody knows the Moon Eye stickers if they're a hot rodder. Of course, uh, Dean Moon was into a lot of different things, and he discovered this Dale body, uh, the one that we have in our museum, on the roof of a muffler shop. It's either a muffler shop or a radiator shop, it, but it was a pretty small-scale uh, business and they don't know how it actually got to the roof of this this shop either it was they were trying to hide it as the car company imploded uh, so it didn't get confiscated or or something along those lines so ended up on the roof of this building dean moon uh, knowing that the the public was pretty captivated by it thought maybe he could purchase it bring it back to his shop, make a kit car, and offer that kit car up for sale uh, but as the story's told uh, the the implosion of the the 20th century motor car company was just a little too fresh in the minds of the the state government. So they really didn't want Dean to do anything with it. So uh, Dean called his friend Bill here in Lincoln and said, Bill, you know, you have a fiberglass shop. Maybe there's something uh, you can do with this thing. And I think Bill was uh, intrigued by the story uh, of uh, Liz Carmichael and intrigued with the news about the car company. So he bought it thinking the same thing. Perhaps he would build a body and a frame kit and offer them in his catalog to people who wanted to build a crazy uh, kit car. Well, as soon as he acquired the car, he realized it was probably going to be too much work. Uh, so therefore, he sent it over to us at the museum where it's lived since the since the mid-70s.
0: Yeah. And so what's your personal take then of the Dale and over your time of being there with it, obviously being there, seeing, knowing about it for the last five years? I mean, what's your takeaway on the vehicle?
1: Well, you know, I try to look at it without thinking too much about the documentary because, you know, I could just give you my first impression. And being a car person, you know, when I looked at it, I thought, boy, this thing really doesn't look very stable. (laughs) You know, if you tried to drive it or take a corner, you know, everything in my mind, you know, uh, told me that, uh, you know, it would tip over and probably not perform very well. And so that begs the question, you know is it similar to the DeLorean or the Tucker and that it was, you know, a a true attempt to create something uh, to offer the general public, or was it just a scam uh, to separate people from their money? And then uh, the the person who was uh, behind the scenes was just going to, you know, uh, hit the trail and and leave everybody high and dry. I guess, you know, if you had to ask me, uh, that's a really tough question to answer, but I I have a hard time believing uh, that uh, Liz Carmichael, was trying to create something uh, that was that was truly going to be offered. I, I just there there's just she just has too much uh, negative history. I think.
0: Yeah, I mean that's obviously from my experience. I I know the the Dale at the Peterson Museum, having uh, worked there on their car stories program and understanding the story and talking to Leslie Kendall about the vehicle and, and the history, and then obviously being here in Southern California, I'm well aware of the the 20th Century Motor Car Company and their things going on before the documentary ad but it, it is i will say it is funny watching the documentary and seeing um things i mean obviously beauty is certainly always in the eye of the beholder but uh, <laughs> i myself th- tend to think the dale is maybe a little bit too wide a little bit too long and a little bit too tall for as you say to maybe go around corner as, as well as they suggested and that that it can do when do i throw it through the s's in the first one with the original dale <laughs> But I mean, look, if you're an engineer working the project, I could certainly see why you liked it and the idea of mm-hmm. of going after those big three and the the oil crisis time. I mean, it is a compelling story. But I, as as I always thought, the best thing about it, I thought, was funny was when they kept showing the the location here in Los Angeles. They had the the Volkswagen Beatles and the Honda Civic parked out front and I thought, well weren't they some <laughs> ultra, ultra alternatives they could have got? down in the low <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just it's funny how these things work.
1: It's so true. I I, I totally agree and you know it's uh You know, it's just interesting, too, you know, I brought my kids in because they've heard me talking about the Dale over the past couple of weeks, and so I brought my 10- and my 8-year-old in uh, over the weekend to the museum to show them the Dale car, and, you know, uh, even not knowing anything about cars, they said, you know, Dad that's one ugly car. And, and, uh, I don't see how it would work. And, and, you know, it's just interesting, you know, that there were enough people in the seventies, but it, maybe it shows just how desperate we were for a small car and a car that was fuel efficient, you know, back in those days, because boy, there were, there was a lot of interest over it.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I think the hundreds of uh, thousands of people that put the money down for it, but I mean, obviously we still have the the three-wheeled cars now, I mean, we've gone away from, as from my background, obviously, in England with the Reliant, with the the single wheel up front, the two wheels in the back, and we have sort of keeping with the Dale philosophy, the two wheels up front for stability. But we do have those companies that are making those small niche manufactured cars now that that's still have got a market out there for that, as you said, the the either electric or um, sort of high economy vehicles that are provided in that sort of unique disposition, one might say.
1: Oh, a- absolutely. That, that's, that's absolutely true. And I was just talking to somebody who said his friend was developing a three-wheeled st- car that had a styrofoam body and it just blew me away you know i i think there are a lot of people trying to to still to this day build a better mousetrap and you know m- more power to them i i think it's great and you know i, I wish more people would get out the toolbox and, and try to actually build something uh, i think it's a it's a wonderful thing and you know the dale story like you had mentioned and alluded to there were a lot of people that worked at 20th century motor cars that Really believed in it. And, you know, I thought it was interesting in the documentary when some of them were interviewed, they said, you know what, we'd go right back to work on it because that's how much we believed in it, you know, and we believed we were working on something great, you know, right, right down to the guy at the drawing board, you know, creating the the concept drawings, which, you know, that, that says a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, people are still very passionate to this day. I mean, we have recent examples, obviously, with a little bit of scope. But, for example, Tesla and and all the new electric Mm -hmm. vehicles that are coming out, and like Bollinger and so forth, where people are really wanting to see these things succeed because we're looking for that next alternative. And it's it's always, as you said, it's always good to see these creative people coming together and working for something, hopefully, with a little less shenanigans on the back end of it. And hopefully, (laughs) everything's a little bit more... More formal these days and following the rules and regulations, one might say. But you know, I mean, it's great to see that we still have people, especially here in the United States, that are looking to try and go on the next step, go down these routes with new technologies, and seeing what they can do to sort of innovate and and be creative to see where we can take these things.
1: Absolutely, you know, there's that old saying, and and Bill used to say this all the time. You know that there's nothing new with cars. You know, he'd go and look at a like at a Harry Miller engine, and he'd say, "Gosh, you know." There is nothing new, but, you know, I, I would beg to differ. I, I think that there are enough ways that that we can think creatively. You know, gosh, what would have we have said 20 years ago about electric cars and, and I just got passed by a Tesla on my way here? I mean, it's just, you know, it, it, it's interesting, you know, how things can change and evolve and, and new ideas uh, can be spun and, and uh, some pretty interesting products can come of it. That's for sure.
0: Certainly. And with that being the case, with with all the listeners that are wanting to find out more about the museum, what's the best way to sort of find information on the Speedway Motors Museum of American Speed?
1: Well, they can certainly visit our our website uh, at the museum We have a pretty fabulous spread of some of the examples of the cars and the engines and other displays that we have. Uh, up currently, I, I I beg people to actually come and visit us because until you're actually here, you know, you can't really Understand just what a vast and and large collection it is, and I know that's tough when you're in the middle of the country. You know, being in Lincoln, Nebraska, I understand a lot of folks are flying right over us. But if you get a chance uh, to to make it uh, to this neck of the woods, uh, I really invite you to stop and and, uh, you know have a tour uh, with one of our volunteers and and make sure you ask for me and say hello. I mean, it's a it's a fabulous collection, and you know if you can't do that, the website's great. You can also check us out on social media facebook probably being the best channel uh we we try to keep up with all of the current events and new arrivals uh, on facebook so it's a pretty fun story to keep up with
0: yeah and i believe obviously they've got the instagram page there which is excellent and the youtube page as well that everyone should check out but no look tim i'm going to be very honest as soon as i feel safe enough to go and get back on an airplane and travel some places i'm definitely and I'll be also be honest as well. I I don't really fancy leaving my 70 degrees, 70 degrees Southern California, <laughs> blue sky, wanted to come to Lincoln, Nebraska in the middle of winter. But when the seasons <laughs> change and we can get back on those aircrafts again, I'm definitely planning a, big, a visit out there.
1: Oh, springtime in Lincoln is great. You know, it's the Great Plains. we got beautiful flowers and fresh air. You know, when you get a chance, you know, let me know. I will give you the VIP tour, my friend.
0: Oh, Tim, that is wonderful. And again, thank you so much for making the time, Tim. I really appreciate it. And everyone should certainly go and look at the museum, definitely online, and then go see it in person when it reopens again, museumofamericanspeed.com. And you can also find it on uh, Facebook as well, Museum of American Speed. Twitter, I think, is just American underscore speed. And then Instagram, I think, is Museum of American Speed. So everyone, please go check it out. Tim, thank you so much again for all your time today very much appreciate it. And again, everyone, thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.